Hello, my friends. Welcome to Rainbow Parenting, a queer and gender-affirming podcast for parents, educators, and anyone with littles in their lives. I'm your host, Linz Amer. Today, I'm talking to sex educator Justine Ang Fonte, and we're talking about sex education, we're talking about health education, we're talking about early childhood approaches to sex ed. A little bit of a heads up that this is going to be a bit of a dense episode. We are covering a lot of really, really important stuff in this episode. You might want to listen to it a couple of times. But I'm so excited that I got to bring Justine onto the show today to talk to all of you about consent, about bodily autonomy, two things that are incredibly pertinent right now in the year 2022. We're talking about the term age appropriate. We're talking about sex education as abuse prevention and a whole lot of other stuff. But before we get to my conversation with Justine, I just want to remind you all that we are still growing this little podcast of ours, and we need your help. If you are enjoying this podcast and what we're bringing to the podcast world, and you want to help us grow the show, then think of maybe one, two, even three or more people in your life who you think might benefit from listening to this podcast and tell them about it. Pick your favorite episode that we've had so far and send it to them, telling them why they should listen to it. That's going to really, really help us grow this show and continue making more episodes because I've got a huge, huge list of future guests and I would really, really love to get to them. So, I need your help to spread the word about rainbow parenting. Maybe you'll like this episode and you'll want to share it. That would be awesome. Thank you so much to everyone already who's been supporting the show and telling your friends and spreading the word. I so, so appreciate it. I really, really love making this podcast and I want to keep doing it and I want to keep bringing these incredible conversations to you. So help me help you. All right, we're going to get to my conversation with Justine really soon. But before we get there, here's what you need to know. Sex ed is a little bit of a misnomer. What do I mean by that? Sex education is about so much more than sex, than what you might think of when I say the word sex, which is probably sexual intercourse. But sex ed is so much more than the birds and the bees and the stork and this way of thinking about our bodies. Sex ed is so much more than that. It's about health, first of all, and understanding our bodies as humans and how we work and how other people's bodies work and how different parts of our bodies work. It's about puberty. It's about sexuality. It's about gender. It's about who we are as humans and how we develop our sense of self through our bodies. When I'm talking about sex education in early childhood spaces, I'm not talking about having the sex talk with a toddler because that's not necessarily age relevant. It's not necessarily a question that they're having at that age and that they are curious about and want to have answered. And I I talk about this with Justine a, a bit in this episode, because I think when I say 
that a lot of my work is around, and a lot of Justine's work and, and people in the field, a lot of our work is around sex education and health education in early childhood spaces. I get a reaction, right? Because some people's minds go toward giving a talk about sex to a group of kindergartners, when that's not exactly what this work is, especially when it comes to conversations around sexuality. We can talk about sexuality without talking about sex. Queerness and queer and gay identity are extricable from queer and gay sex. You don't need to talk about queer and gay sex in order to talk about queerness and gayness. I have about 50 different spellings of the word pedophile on my social media block list that I use on most of the platforms that I'm on because people think that what I do sexualizes children or that children are being sexualized or are put in the vicinity of sexualizing or being sexualized because of my work. And I think Justine gets this criticism a lot. And the word groomer is being thrown around quite a bit in the world right now, especially while queer and trans educators and education is under attack right now, especially on social media, when that's just so far from the truth of what this work is. The caveat that I want to give here, though, is that even though we're not necessarily talking to kids about sex in this work that we're doing, that doesn't give you an excuse not to talk about sex when it becomes relevant to them, which is when they start asking the questions about it. And that's not the question, what makes a baby? The conversation around what makes a baby is not the same conversation as what is sex. Those two conversations come at different developmentally appropriate times in a child's life. It's about following the lead of your child and following their curiosity and their questions about their bodies in relationship to other people and other people's bodies. So let's stretch the notion of what sex ed and sex education encompasses and how we can approach different topics at different age relevant times in a person's life, in a young child's life. All right, that's enough from me. Let's get to my conversation with Justine Angfonte. Hello. Oh my gosh. I am so, so excited to bring my guest onto the pod today. This is Justine Angfonte. Welcome to the pod. Thanks, Linz. I'm happy to be here. Before we get started, can you just tell me your pronouns and how you identify? I identify as a cis, heterosexual woman, and my pronouns are she, and you can also use they. Fantastic. And I think it's really important, before we kind of get into career and background and all of that, I just want to remind people that we as social justice workers and sex educators and people who are working in the early childhood space, we're humans too outside of our work. So how are you doing? I am doing okay. And that's not just like a regular answer, okay, but usually I'll say I'm doing great. Mm -hmm. I'm awesome. I'm not doing great, but I'm right in the middle with actual okay. Cool. Um, coming off of a five-week speaking tour on the road was very delightful and exhausting, but it was paired with coming home to New York City and being inundated with 
a new set of trolls who have just been introduced to me um, because of a recycled tweet from last year where there was a whole lot of hate coming my way for the work I did in sex education um, in K through 12 settings. So I'm okay in that I'm way more emotionally equipped than I was last year when this happened. So I Mm. feel like I'm coping um, in a way that is uh, not just sustainable, but effective, but it still is disheartening to see that so many people are in so much pain and projecting that pain onto a complete stranger, not only fortifies the work that I do, but, you know, can be a little discouraging every so often, especially when you're just coming off this high of knowing what you're doing is making direct constructive impact in protecting children's lives. But the inbox messages say the complete opposite. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so sorry to hear that you're going through that again. It's just completely awful. <laughs> and I'm, yeah. I'm glad you're you feel more equipped to deal with it now because feel like the second time around, you've at least grown a thicker skin for, from experience, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I have been hearing from educators that there's been a, a very recent uptick in um, in harassment, which um, is terrible and not fun. So I'm, I'm sorry to hear that you're experiencing that. But I am so glad to be sharing a little virtual space with you today and Me for too. folks to be able to listen to you and what you do and like all the awesome work that you're up to. So Let's dive in, shall we? Let's do it. So uh, let's uh, let the folks know your background and what you do, just the whole rigmarole. I became a sex educator officially my senior year of high school as a peer educator, um, but it really became official, um, I guess I would say uh, about 13 years ago. Hmm. And what I've been doing in sex education is through um, my public health background and my teaching background. So putting those two together and first really running a uh, department at a K through 12 school um, centered on health and wellness was how I've been able to um, really practice a lot of the things that I'd studied so deeply, but now be able to put into classroom settings and to share around really the country based on what I was building so well upon um, at, at my home school in New York City. So I've been working in um, schools for uh, quite some time, and um, I finished off my tenure at that school in the early education grades, which was so affirming for so many reasons um, that I'm sure we'll get into, but I've been loving doing sex education and doing so in an intersectional way and having queer kids stuff come to meet my students in a variety of different capacities from a queer family day event that we did. To- that was so much fun. <laughs> it was so much fun. And the kids loved it. The families were so happy it was there. And it was, oh, it was just such a delight um, to be able to bring that. And I hope it um, is something they annually do. And then bringing in queer kids stuff for uh, meeting my actual students um, for some songs and for some readings. So it's just been wonderful to connect with other people wanting to do this life-saving work with our youngest school children. Yeah. Awesome. So I want to just like frame this for our audience. And I think we've talked about this a lot, obviously. And I, I interviewed you for my book that's coming out hopefully next year, <laughs> um, which got me really excited about some of these topics. And there was something that you you said in when I initially interviewed that that I loved. And you talked about doing sex ed from womb to tomb. Can you mm. explain, especially since we're focusing on early childhood education and like toddlers and then young children, 
why it's so important and like why you're so passionate about it, especially for this age group. Yeah, I think it's important to talk about sex, sexuality and gender from the womb to the tomb, because it's something that is impacting us from the womb to the tomb. So why are we waiting until junior year of high school? And why are we limiting it to how to not get pregnant? I think the words sex education have gotten um, a bad rap because of people thinking it's limited to reproductive health care or prevention of disease. And it really is not just that. It's one of the very few things. I really think that, you know, quality sexuality education has to do with agency. And part of understanding, you know, your agency is knowing how your body works, its functions, how to pronounce the different parts of your body, but also knowing how to protect it by truly listening to what it is saying to you. And that means being able to therefore assert boundaries when something feels off. And those are the exact types of skills we want our most vulnerable humans to be equipped with so they can protect themselves, so they can know themselves and not have to wait until something uncomfortable has already happened in middle school or high school to then unlearn all of the things they've been tempering because they've been told it's what they needed in order to be a good kid was just to go and hug that family member, even if you didn't want to, or, you know, just play along because it's something that we, our family does in order to make each other laugh, even if it's something we're uncomfortable with or being expected to behave or take interest in certain things simply because of what genitalia we were born with. So this stuff is happening well before people expect, but I think it's because they don't expect sex education to be something so core to our identity. And that's why it starts from the womb. Yeah. And I think it's also like really debunking or like deconstructing this like mean girls idea of the like phys ed teacher who's mm -hmm. just like sticking a condom on a banana and telling kids like, don't have sex, you're gonna like die and have all mm -hmm. these diseases, right? Like we're, we're looking at, you know, talking to a kindergarten class about like, body agency and body autonomy. So I, I'm curious for listeners, especially folks who are curious about like how to have these conversations with their kids at home, or even if they're educators and they're trying to have them in school, like where do you start? Consent education is a part of body agency. And um, it has more times nothing to do with intercourse. It has all to do with just how we are in relation to another person we're in any type of relationship with. We say this word relationship all the time, and I think we forget it means actually connecting to another human being. So whatever you think would work for you and you would like does not mean the other person would also like that. And so just teaching them right off the bat by modeling asking, communicating, and negotiating gets their own um, muscle memory to master the art of communicating and seeing, is this other person okay? Did that other person like this? Should this continue? And if we get good with these lower stakes scenarios around, you know, can I have your last French fry? May I borrow your pen? Right. Can I have the seat next to you? We're going to know that that's what 
being in relation to another person sounds like. So when the stakes are higher or more intimate or maybe even more physically you know, intimate, we're listening for those same things to know, wait, something's off if I don't hear that or something's weird because I feel like I've missed saying something. And so we're just bringing about that emotional literacy much earlier and modeling it for them in, you know, the other caregivers and adults in their lives doing it themselves. And then when they're interacting with those adults, they're also respecting what they want and need. That's really where real safety occurs. I think there are a lot of ways that parents of, you know, let's say a kindergartner can be bringing this up. Hopefully they are not waiting until the kid is five years old, but they started when they were changing their diaper and already saying like, all right, time to clean you now. Right. And so like, all right, we're going to open it up, walking through all the steps of diaper changing, even the child's not going to respond and say, I don't want this, but the child is already hearing that something is being told about what's coming next to manage expectations. And as opposed to just someone touching their body, especially when we've been teaching them that private parts are private so that when they get older and are starting to be verbal, they can start saying, no, it's okay, auntie, I can go to the bathroom alone. I'm going to close the door. And so that's something that's so powerful. They felt comfortable enough to be able to say to an older person in their life, nope, I can do this. This is something I can do on my own. And I recognize this is a private part. So I can take care of it myself by going potty, whatever it is. So by the time they're you know, five years old, it's asking them still questions. All right, what do you want to wear today? As opposed to you have to wear this. And so I think it's just modeling all of those. And oftentimes a lot of parents and caregivers will say, but, you know, my kid hates going to the dentist. Hmm. And now I feel like I'm forcing them to go to the dentist and I don't want to, you know, force them. I want to be a sex positive parent. Yeah. I think a lot of that has to do with explaining to them why it's important to do certain things that you still might be uncomfortable with. Because it's like, look, if we don't go to the dentist, there might be something that happens to your teeth and then you won't be able to eat your favorite food. And that's going to be really painful. What would make it easier for you to go to the dentist or what would make you feel more comfortable? Mm. Do you want me to sit next to you? Do you want to bring your favorite Teddy? Do you want to hold my hand when we, when the doctor's talking to you, or why don't we practice more at home? Let's just sit on this chair, you know, that recliner chair we have in the living room. And I'll say, okay, open your mouth. And I'm just going to take like the toothbrush or a chopstick, you know, tap around your teeth. So then maybe you just feel more comfortable. But this is also after you've asked your child or the child, you know, what are you scared of so that I can help you through that? That does sound scary. You know what would help me? Maybe like going through a run through of it. Maybe Mm. you need to hold the toothbrush and tap it on your teeth to feel that, right? Is it because it's a complete stranger and you've never met this dentist yet? So you want to understand where their anxiety might be coming from and then modeling for them the importance of why something has to happen if it truly has to happen, but not just saying because you have to, because I told you so, Mm. because that's what will make you a good boy. Oh God, I hate like hearing like a, all right, all the good kids do this, right? That's, you're already creating that social pressure that doesn't need to be there and is making them do things that their body is telling them, you know, in a way out of like evolutionarily survival genetics, there, telling them something doesn't feel right. It doesn't mean it's always going to feel unright, but you need to actually explain to them as opposed to forcing them to just not listen to what their instinct is saying. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important distinction that I think a lot of parents don't always get of like, 
There are some decisions around consent that kids absolutely should always have agency over, over their bodies, hugging, uh, ways people are touching them, absolutely. But there are also decisions parents should be not making, but like giving information about. And this is, I think the the example of the dentist is really good of like, you know, this is something that like, yes, I am uncomfortable going to the dentist. This is not feel good for my body, but it is something that like is important for your health and important for your safety long term. And so giving a child that information about their body and their longevity and their health is a part of consent. And exactly. I think that's that you know, is a great parallel to like transness and like trans kids being able to make choices about their body and the future of their body and the future of their body's health. So I think that that's a distinction that can be a little nuanced, but is super, super important because like, yeah, we're not telling like you, like, you know, your baby's going to say no to changing your diaper because right. that's about safety too, right? right? Like you don't want your baby to have a rash. You don't want them to be uncomfortable. And like making a choice around consent can have consequences and understanding and making that connection, I think, is super important to be able to teach your child. Right. I think um, there's a lot to get into with all of this. Something I want to dive into a little bit is this idea of what is age appropriate within sex education. Can you talk a little bit about that term? I don't know. I get like a little funny about like, what does like the word appropriate mean? Is that like, I feel like that's like a little dog whistly sometimes. So yeah, tell me how you feel about the term appropriate. I don't like it is how I feel about it um, because it's subjective and it's mm. oftentimes determined or defined uh, by people's discomfort versus what's actually relevant and necessary. And mm. so I like to use age relevant, age congruent, right? Mm. And really talk more about how it is cognitively developmentally aligned with what they need to know at that age, especially when it comes to these sensitive types of topics. If a child is already asking you a question about something that you believe to be way above what they should be knowing, got it. You believe that, but the child already knows it and they've already debunked your conception of what they should know. Hmm. It's now age relevant. There is a way then to explain or give an answer that is cognitively going to make sense to them, but it's relevant because they've now asked it. Hmm. So it means you got to answer it. What I really was frustrated by growing up was oftentimes I would hear, I'll tell you when you're older. And yeah, that really, totally. first of all, no one ended up telling me all those things when I got older. So it's really this cop out of just saying like, I don't want to talk about this right now, or this is too uncomfortable for me. Right. And if we really care about our children getting the knowledge they need to equip themselves with how to navigate uh, the world and to understand their bodies, we owe it to them to provide them with that information. If we don't know it, that's another thing. You're like, you know, that's a good question. I'm not sure, but I'm going to find out or let's find out together. I know some great resources that can give us an answer. But if you really know it, don't think of the question in the terms of how you understand it as a grown adult. Think about, you know, what makes sense to a five-year-old versus an eight-year-old versus an 18-year-old, right? It's going to sound different, mm -hmm. but the content can still be delivered. 
So um, I don't like the term age appropriate. It's so often used, especially in sex education, like standards. I understand its usage. So I will use it with an asterisk while I'm speaking, Mm -hmm. saying, so this is age appropriate. I would rather refer to these things as developmentally aligned with where they're at and relevant because they're already asking about it or their peers are experiencing it. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about whatever it is. I don't like how age appropriate is used. And it's usually as um, an excuse to just delay or even forego the actual education that they deserve to get. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I and I want to circle back a little bit about like this work as protective and like even preventative work for kids. Something that I've talked about quite a bit is this idea of like age relevant to use the term you're using uh, sex ed as abuse prevention. Can you speak to that a little bit, especially in terms of like um, teaching consent, but also teaching appropriate body language, I think is an important part of that as well. Yeah, um, I'll answer that, Linz, with um, talking about the research and studies that have done with actual sexual predators. Awesome. Yeah. So when they're interviewed and asked, you know, who's your prey? How do you determine who to target? Sexual predators will say kids that, you know, are ill-equipped with understanding how their body works and what their Mm. body parts are. I'm picking the kids that are most vulnerable And most vulnerable to me means kids who don't know that private parts are private Mm. and they don't even know what constitutes a private part versus a public part, if you will. They don't know boundaries because nobody ever modeled or taught it to them to assert it. Mm. So if that is the information we're getting from exactly the enemy that we are all trying to protect our children from, then we need to actually equip them with the vocabulary and with the skills to assert boundaries, especially when it comes to them recognizing that their private parts are private. Otherwise, we are actually making them vulnerable to these predators. Just by talking about sexuality doesn't you know, lead to any of these things happening. It actually is preventative of those things from happening. Yeah. I think that's, I'd never actually heard about that research before. That's super, super interesting and corroborates a lot of everything we're talking about, right? I think um, having that information is definitely motivating. I would hope it's motivating for parents and educators. But what are, what kind of obstacles or barriers have you come up against in your work, especially with like parents who have like, I'm nervous about this, like I like who have mental blocks, because I think that something that is how we grew up and how we were taught about our bodies or not taught about our bodies. What are some of those kind of like hoops to jump through walls to scale? And how can we start to break those down for folks who want to bring this work to their kids and into their homes and into their schools? The first one is we need to destigmatize sexuality. That is the cause of so much anxiety and a lack of providing, you know, information that they deserve. So even a lesson about what are the body parts, let's pronounce these words and pronounce them correctly and know where they're located on, you know, a photo uh, of a drawing or something. Right. But there's a reason so many families like to use nicknames for different genitalia, because even just the word 
either has a derogatory tone to it or a culturally profane, um, you know, aspect to it Mm -hmm. when it is literally just a body part. And so that's why they're not getting the content because they're not, they're like, okay, well, I know that this is my nose and this is my elbow, Mm -hmm. but grandma keeps calling this a peepee. And then somebody else said this other word and laughs afterwards. Mm -hmm. So now they're already on their own hyper stigmatizing something that didn't need to be from this get-go. One of the biggest hurdles is just being comfortable with saying the words vulva, penis. And I already know that by the time I'm teaching them in fifth grade for puberty lessons, it's very clear the kids that have gotten accustomed to destigmatizing this versus the kids that have never, ever heard this word said in public. And so just destigmatizing sexuality would really be the solution to so many of the issues, not all of them, but mm-hmm. definitely a lot of them, because it's hard to teach body agency when they aren't even comfortable saying the words about what's on their body and how they function. So that's a really big hurdle in early ed. Our parents being comfortable with the fact that their child is now saying the word vulva, is now saying the word penis, and is comfortable saying it to say like, there is an itch on my penis and that's why I'm scratching it. Or there's something on my vulva. I need, you know, an adult to help me figure out what that is. Hmm. And the reason that that connects so um, well to sexual abuse prevention is because they can actually name what may have happened to them clearly, as opposed to saying, oh, I got tickled there. What's there? Well, you know, no, you can't. We can't help a child who has survived such trauma if they can't actually communicate what happened to them. And that's why it's so important that we talk to them about what their actual body parts are, how to pronounce them, where they are in their body and that they are private parts. So that's the that's one big hurdle. Mm-hmm. Um, another big one that I get often too is, um, you know, around gender, you teaching our kids about this, they pronoun is making them non-binary I roll, <laughs> right. Or what, or my kid is going to be trans because you gave them the option to use a different pronoun than, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Right. Um, just because my kid wears this outfit. Um, You know, I don't want to push them even further in that direction. Right. And like the part that I've become generous with empathizing with a parent's concern there is that, I mean, this is not the case with all parents, but they're just afraid of their child's safety. My kid's going to get made fun of if they do something that's non-conforming. And I don't want that to be my kid's experience. That's Mm going to be tough. Right. I get it. And it's also our ability and our responsibility to disrupt that culture that would harass or bully a child. We shouldn't just be continuing the conveyor belt just because it's on autopilot. We actually have an ability to press the stop button and make it different. Yeah. I think the the thing that parents in particular sometimes don't understand about trans experience and like a child's trans experience is that If your child is queer, trans, and you don't want them to like have, quote unquote, like have a hard life, experience bullying, if you don't allow them to express themselves and their gender in the way that feels authentic to them, they are already feeling that internally. You just might not be able to see it. So you taking 
preventative measures is actually probably making things worse in the long run. And like that suffering is going to happen no matter what you do. Either you can help them through what's happening externally because of societal norms, or you're going to continue to perpetuate that system and hurt their mental health in the wrong run. So there's no ability to even prevent what you're trying to prevent. That is like out the window. (laughs) Uh, Like once your child, you know, comes into this world (laughs) that we're in and like as like a queer trans person and like that is going to be their experience no matter what you do. So the best thing you can do is to support them in as many ways as you possibly can through systems that are awful. Can I add to that, Lens? Yeah, please. Um, I also, I, my wish is for parents to live in a life of abundance where instead of restricting their child because they think that would be safer, mm. giving them the abundant life that allows them to be full of gender being represented in every way, as opposed to in like, you know, a very cornered restrictive way. Dr. Kyle Myers, who wrote the book Raising Them, is really, I think, demonstrating it well with how we're not trying to get rid of gender. We're trying to create a gender full world. Mm -hmm. And when you give your child all of that liberty, that's really where they're going to understand who they are to be able to sooner tell you who they are, if that's what you're worried about, and then be able to know that, you know, there are just so many ways that they can be happy as opposed to restricting them and say, this is the one way that, you know, they're going to be happy. I've been seeing a little more like, I don't know about memes, but like maybe quotes or just like things coming out in social media around parents recognizing, I want my child to tell me who they are Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to tell them who they need to be. That's just such a powerful thing that, you know, I know so many queer adults would have wished to have heard that from their parents because they're having to come out of a closet that their parents built and wanted them to, you know, stay in or not even have to be a part of. So it's just it's frustrating that we are thinking that what we're teaching is harmful when it actually is. It's about freedom. It's about liberty. It's about getting them to live in this life of abundance to express themselves in the way that actually is happiest, as opposed to us assuming we know what that is. Yeah, I know. I I absolutely agree. And I think as we're shifting this a little bit into, I mean, what this podcast is about, right? Queer and gender affirming parenting strategies and and methodologies, I guess. Um, Let's talk a little bit about like what those body talks look like, what body language looks like with a trans lens. I think that sometimes we get really caught up in like, you know, boys and penises, girls and vulvas and vaginas. While we're like talking to our kids about these body parts and and having these conversations around consent, how can we be more gender inclusive and like teaching children to approach these topics in a gender inclusive way, just like from the get go? I think one of like the 
earlier times that, you know, a conversation like this may come up with, you know, early ed is when a child sees a pregnant person Mm -hmm. and right away, the parents are already starting to feel, oh God, they're going to find out how it got there and what, you know, all of that stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And I have to have this talk already, but it's right away just using the term pregnant person. So they might say, oh, like, look at that person. Like, why is their belly like, you know, that whatever it is. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And just like, oh, that's a person who's pregnant as opposed to using cis normative language and assuming like, well, women can get pregnant. I mean, that is true. And men can also get pregnant. So why not just use the gender inclusive term, which is a person that gets pregnant, who's a pregnant person right there waiting in line with us at the grocery store too. Mm -hmm. So right then and there focusing on uh, the body part that is, you know, at the, at the center of the conversation. So if you're talking about, you know, periods, you're talking about menstruators and people who menstruate are people who have ovaries. So you're talking about directly, you're giving them more science to actually make sense of why things happen the way they do and the functionality of it. So using language like that for young people, it's like, well, there are some people that are going to have a vulva and there's some people that are going to have a penis. Um, What do you have? Oh, okay. So there might be other kids who also have the same thing as you, but you won't be able to know that just by looking at their face or their, their, you know, like things like that. Right. Yeah. Um, because you can't tell someone's gender just by looking at them as we've already been talking about child. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you just keep saying with that, with that conversation and then, yeah. in, in puberty lessons, when I'm doing that too, you know, in middle school kids it's sounding like, well, menstruators or right. Or people who um, have a penis may get an erection. This is what it looks like. Actually people who have a clitoris can also get an erection. It just looks a little different because it's a lot smaller of a body part from the outside. Right. And then the in high school, when we're talking about protective methods, it's like, well, there's an internal and an external condom and it gets placed on the outside of a penis or in the inside of a vagina. And so this is how it's um, gender inclusive. It's trans inclusive, right? It, it works with every body. Yeah. Oh my gosh, we've covered a lot. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about that we haven't kind of touched on yet? Yeah, I do want to say this other um line that I've been using now in a lot of my consent education. Mm. And I, I, I wish I did it more when um, I used to be teaching a lot more early ed stuff, but when I'm in those spaces, I'm definitely bringing it in now. Gender roles and perpetuating them is actually non-consensual behavior. Hmm. Tell me more. That's really interesting. So when we talk about consent education, right, I tell people, hey, no means no. That's true, but it's not exhaustive of how we need to be teaching it, because what about if they're silent? Mm -hmm. Right. What if they're still thinking about it? What if it's a maybe? Right. And then I start arguing that yes means yes is not enough. Because think about the number of times you've ever said yes to something you actually didn't want to do and you did it anyway. Yep. And then you think about those reasons. Oh, I felt obligated to. I felt guilty if I didn't. It'd be easier to just do it. Um, they kept persisting and it was annoying. And it would just, it, the ask would stop if I finally just said yes. And for a lot of survivors, it's safer for them to say yes. Yeah, totally. Right. So that's why then we start bringing the whole like enthusiastic. Yes. Like movement. Mm -hmm. Got it. Right. And doesn't have to be enthusiastic. It could just be engaged, freely given, sober, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's like already we're at the 102 of sex ed, like, you know, for consent kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But here's the added layer on how gender roles come into play. People behave in a way they may not want to because they felt pressured to, obligated to, guilty if they didn't. It was just easier to go along with it. Mm. That's a lot 
of queer kids where they're yeah. being who they aren't because it's expected, it's obligated. Maybe for them, they don't know what it's like to go another way. It, whatever it is, it's being coerced onto them to behave, take interest, act, whatever it is in a way that's not truly their real answer. So when we think about this word, yes, and in its truest form, its most genuine form, that means affirmation of what we believe and who we are. And if someone is perpetuating a gender role on them and saying, nope, because of this genitalia, you have to do this. You have Mm. to wear that. You have to believe this, whatever, right? We are coercively telling them to go against what they genuinely want to say or be or do. Hmm. That's non-consensual behavior. Hmm. It's like structural consent issues of like Hmm. society and like culture on like a larger scale and like how that oppresses us in our like everyday experience. That is super interesting. I never thought to like look at it from a consent lens. I I like that. Me too. This is a newish thing for me too. My good friend Tahir Duckett, who does a lot of consent education in college campuses, we did a co-facilitation recently. And um, I think it organically came out of his mouth as we were presenting, because it's not something he, I think, normally says. Mm -hmm. And when I looked at him and I went, (laughs) I was like, Dude, I feel like it's that meme of the like the like brain explosion where uh-huh. it's like consent education. And, yep. <laughs> and then yep. it just keeps going and it's just like, oh, I'm seeing the matrix. <laughs> right. And so it started to like marinate and marinate because I'm like, I've been teaching this, you know, doing this work for so long like in, in kind of separate ways, gender mm-hmm. education, consent education. Yeah, totally. And then all of a sudden that mind blowing experience of like, no wonder both of these fall under sex ed. Right. Oh my gosh. I I love ending on a mind blown moment. That's great. (laughs) Um, This was awesome. We're going to take a very quick break and then we're going to be back and we're going to answer some listener questions. Should be fun. Sounds good. All right. We'll see you then. And we are back back with Justine Angfonte, and we're going to answer a couple of listener questions for you. Uh, so I've got this first one here. Ready to dive in? Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, so this first question comes in. It's anonymous. How do I handle toddler masturbation? My toddler is starting to explore his body, which I think is great, but my wife and I feel a little out of our depth as two people with vulvas and vaginas. That's interesting. How would yeah. you how would you help this toddler parent uh, navigate this? Yeah. Well, hopefully the language around what their genitalia, you know, is and, you know, how to pronounce it has already been commonplace Mm -hmm. when changing diapers and whatnot um, or changing in and out of clothes. And so, you know, using the words penis or vulva to a two-year-old, a three-year-old, hopefully isn't like, wait, what? What did you just say? And so now you're just connecting that these words that I've been teaching you and to locate on your own body are actually private parts and private parts are private. And then you explain what the word private means. It means it's Mm -hmm. only for you. It's always supposed to be safe and you get to decide who you may um, let interact with it. And maybe that's me as your caregiver when you need help changing in and out of your swimsuit, or if it ever becomes exposed, then you're in a private room like a bathroom, like a bedroom. Right away, you're teaching them a review of what these 
body parts are. Mm -hmm. And then you're now adding the next level, which is those body parts are private. Notice when we were walking around on the street, you don't actually see other people's penises or vulvas. They're like, yeah, like what parts do you do see? Like, oh, I see their face. I see their wrists. I see their hands. If they're wearing flip-flops, I see their feet. Right. But notice we don't see anyone's penis or we don't see anyone's vulva because those are private parts. Now, the only time they might even see their own private parts is when they're in a private room. Where do you see your own private parts? Oh, when we take a bath. Right. And that's in what type of room? Oh, that's a bathroom. Like where else? Like, well, maybe when I'm changing into my jammies and where do you usually change in your jammies? Oh, in a bedroom. Yeah. Not everyone's there. Right. And so when somebody wants to go into a bedroom or a bathroom, what do they usually do? Because they know it's private space. They knock. Right. Because private spaces mean that you have a body bubble around your body, protecting you from people who you don't want to come in on you when you're peeing or if you're sleeping. So they knock first and say, Hey, can I come in? And you get a choice to say, no, not yet. Or there's someone in here. Um, or sure. I actually need help. Right. And then you can get help. Mm -hmm. So you're teaching them these body parts and then what privacy really means. And so now you have a toddler who's now touching them. And if they're touching them, it means that you're seeing them touch it. If you're seeing them touch it in a place that's making you feel uncomfortable versus them give with a bar of soap cleaning themselves, mm -hmm. right? Then you know it's being done in a public place. And that's where you now use all that language you had that foundation on mm -hmm. and say, remember, we talked about your private parts being private. So if you ever need to touch it because it might be itchy or you need to change out of your clothes, right? Or it might feel nice to touch it. It's got to be in a, in a private place. Can you remind me what those places are? Right. But see, we're in the living room right now. There's a lot of people that come in and out of here, right? Or we're at the dining room or we're at the park, right? There are a lot of other people. You don't see other people doing that, right? It's because they all know that it's a private place where that gets touched. And that's all you're talking about because your child isn't sexualizing themselves. Mm -hmm. It's literally just something that feels good, but they don't really know why. It's just something that feels nice. It's, it's them self-soothing, right? It's the two-year-old version of sucking your thumb. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with sexualization. And when people make that claim, right, they are the ones sexualizing children. But, you know, when we talk about like erections, my sixth grade kids are always shocked when I tell them infants have erections when their diapers being changed. Oh, I didn't know that. Because anything that's like stimulated, it's like goes onto alert, like what's happening, right? There's a stimulation that has nothing to do with sexual stimulation, it just is that was touched. We're already normalizing that our kids have these sexual organs and parts, but it's not functioning in the way that it would for an adult or a post pubescent child. Right. Mm -hmm. And so just understanding that this is totally normal, but we want them to recognize that it is a private part. So it needs to be touched or exposed only in private places and only touched and exposed to people that your child has said they are comfortable having near them. That was absolutely brilliant. Thank you for stepping through that conversation. I absolutely loved that because I think that folks get really scared about what that is. But like, actually, yeah. it's just a conversation about privacy versus versus public spaces. Exactly. And like that makes it just like so much 
easier to approach and like less scary, right? Yeah. And like, I mean, I don't think that talking about our bodies like with kids it, with like proper language should be scary at all. But like, yeah. if you are nervous about that conversation and parts of that conversation, think about it and like talking about masturbation with like your four year old. I think that like that can be really intimidating for folks who aren't used to doing that and actually being like, this isn't actually a conversation like about masturbation. Yep. It's a conversation about privacy. I mean, that and like all of this being cumulative and like compounding upon each other to like get to these like more advanced, I guess, quote unquote, advanced topics when actually they're just completely age relevant. Like a conversation about privacy is totally something you would have with a toddler, even if we're not discussing masturbation in bodies. Like that's something that they should be gaining an understanding of anyways. So that was awesome. I loved that. <laughs> um, cool. Hopefully people can are taking notes and are <laughs> writing out their scripts for how they're going to talk to their toddlers about privacy in public spaces and their bodies. Um, and I've got another question for you. Let's hear it. So what are some starter anatomy body books or resources I can use with my five-year-old? Mm, okay. So what I have noticed in my um, career around um, early ed and body parts is that they are quite cis normative. Mm. And mm -hmm. um, as a result, I try to use it as a teachable moment to say, is there another type of kid that might also have, you know, a vulva that this book didn't show? So I'm like trying to like add pages to the book that's <laughs> that's missing or that they could have done in a different way. Yeah, I actually just got tagged in an Instagram post that where their kid grabbed a Sharpie and like crossed out like this oh. like girl's book for a puberty book. And it was like person's puberty book. And I was like, <laughs> yes, we're doing the work. <laughs> right. Oh, I love little activists. I love it. Um, but I will share the ones that I use around um, body boundaries. Um, Great. Oft, some of them will bring up about, you know, actual body parts. Um, so there is like a whole series um, from this author named Janine Sanders. And um, I, I have four right here that I use the most that really help with like emotional intelligence, but mm -hmm. then also understanding like, how do you really listen to your body to take care of it? So the first one is called uh, My Body, What I Say Goes. Mm. Um, and this is all about a kid named Zoe um, and body boundaries, cool. which includes um, some pages around, you know, private parts being private. So when I'm bathing with my, you know, trusted adults, I could also tell them I got this. I don't need your help because it's a private place and I can, you know, take care of it myself. And it's talking about the different body parts that are actually private. There's actually, I think this is the one um, I took my um, whiteout uh, roller and Ugh. just started kind of like rewriting over oh some gosh. of the font. There it is. I mean, I'll show it to you, but for audio mm -hmm. and those listening in, like there used to be a whole sentence here. Lins, mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. And then another about one about like, oh, here we go. It looks very natural. It looks yes. just like, just like that's how it was printed. <laughs> right. So I put like, everyone also has nipples when mm -hmm. some get older and blah, 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 mm -hmm. blah. Right. So I just wrote over them to try to make it my ideal book. But, you know, I, I really like this series. So Janine mm -hmm. Sanders has this book, um, My Body, What I Say Goes. Yeah. And then this is another really great one from Janine. Um, let's talk about body boundaries, consent, respect. Cool. Um, and again, about body bubbles and interacting with other kids. 
Um, and then the other two are more about emotional intelligence, how big are your worries, little bear. So it's again, really listening to what your body is saying mm-hmm. um, to then bring yourself to safety. Um, and then like resilience, this is like a whole series. So awesome. Yeah. But those first two are my big wrecks. Awesome. And we'll stick these in the show notes so folks can get them. We've got like some bookshop.org lists that we'll add these to. That's great. Um, And we're going to be talking about those books that you brought in a little bit more for our Patreon members. So if anyone um, is curious, all of our guests are talking about their favorite kids media (laughs) um, over on our Patreon feed. So head on over there if you are interested in learning a little bit more about this. And um, kind of this like Sharpie activism, whiteout activism (laughs) (laughs) that we can do with the books on our shelves. So when you do find resources and they're not like quite the right thing, you can make them the right thing on your own and like using that as an activity with your family. So we'll be talking a little bit about that over on our Patreon. Thank you so much, Justine. This was an awesome conversation. We covered so much and I think this is going to be really, really valuable and actionable for our listeners. So thank you so much for joining me. And um That's all we got. Thanks for having me, Lens. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much. Oh my gosh, what an incredible conversation that was. I know we got to a lot of stuff that was really dense. If you need to go back and re-listen to it, please, please do. There's just so, so much in that conversation that is so important and some things that were new to me as well. That's that's a really big part of why I'm, I'm really just absolutely loving producing this podcast and making this and having these conversations is because I'm learning stuff right along with y'all. So please, please, please go check out Justine and her work. And you can always find me on social media. I'm at Linz Amer, L-I-N-D-Z-A-M-E-R on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find me on TikTok at Queer Mixter Rogers if you're over there. If you are a member of our Patreon page, I had a chat with Christine about some of her favorite kids media right now. She brought a couple of books and we talk a little bit more about some of her Sharpie activism, which is one of my new favorite tactics. If you like this episode or any of the other episodes we've put out already, please, please, please tell a friend, tell two friends, tell three friends, tell all of your friends about this podcast about rainbow parenting. We are growing our community and this space right now. So help us out. Thank you so, so much for supporting and listening to me and the incredible guests that we've got on this podcast. Next week, we're bringing you a conversation about trans kids and sports, kids in sports and gender in sports. Generally, I'm talking to folks from Athlete Ally, which is an incredible organization, and from the documentary Changing the Game. Please check that out. And that'll be in your ears next Monday. That's all we got for you today. Talk soon. Rainbow Parenting is hosted and created by me, Linz Amer. It's produced in partnership with Multitude and is edited by Misha Stanton. The theme music is by Amanda Darchangelis and the logo artwork is by Abe Tenzia.